This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to Episode 7 of the Not Quite Daily Show, talking about Episode 7 of Made in Abyss. My name is Theta, and today, as promised, we are going to do theme cleanup on our series. I was looking forward to this episode in hopes it would help clarify some things for us, and I have to say, it answered a lot of questions and then brought up a lot of new questions. <laughs> it definitely went down in a way I did not expect. We're back to our normal board setup, and we'll once again go through goals and conflicts, a fair amount of characterization and world building, then we'll talk about theme and a little bit of a theme cleanup, which you can probably already see, and then a little bit of what to watch for and a little bit of speculation. very little advancement in goals this time around. Narratively, we both begin and end in the Seeker Camp area. What is basically Reg's main goal and driving force, which is to protect Rico? We got a little bit of a setback this time. Ozen demonstrated in no uncertain terms that he is not up to the task of protecting her from anything and everything. Further, she reiterates for us that the use of Incinerator is not the trump card it seems like because he's out of commission afterwards. Since this is Reg's kind of guiding goal, we can expect some of his actions in the future to be directed at shoring up what he now sees as a bit of a weakness. We mentioned last time that Ozen has some unknown goal, and we got maybe a little bit of a peek at what it is. Ostensibly, what Ozen was doing last episode and this episode was sort of testing Reg and Rico, their physical resolve, their psychological resolve, essentially seeing if they are worthy of the Abyss or are fit to go any further. Why she may consider herself the gatekeeper for that kind of thing, we don't quite know. In order, though, to say that this was Ozen's goal, we have to believe her when she says all this at the end. Now, the episode gives us plenty of extra reasons and little context clues to believe her, but she's definitely shown herself to be a little bit inscrutable. Even if this is truly a goal of her, I suspect it is not the end goal. I suspect she has some other goal, and I suspect it's related to Liza. Speaking of Liza, last time it looked like our goal of finding Liza might have had a permanent setback when Ozen declared that she found her grave, and Liza certainly did. But instead, this time, Ozen indicates that, no, the grave really was empty. Of course I would dig it up. Liza's definitely waiting for you. Now, which Ozen do you believe? Uh, don't know. Liza's grave being empty doesn't also mean that Liza's automatically alive and okay either. But at the very least, the series continues to give themselves some wiggle room there. This goal is still alive and well. Moving on to conflicts, we have the warning about Ozen kind of come to fruition. We have a little bit of narration from Habo where he's thinking, surely Ozen wouldn't tell him about the vessel. And of course, uh, Ozen tells them about the vessel. Now, this is honestly one of the biggest and kind of more shocking revelations in the series so far. I suspect we will come to find out that a lot of the decisions made by various actors in the story stem from the fact of Rico's origin. Either way, I'm not really sure this is the kind of thing you dump on a 12-year-old, certainly in a gleeful way, the way Ozen did. Now, later, after pummeling the crap out of Reg, she's then all, it was just a prank, bro. And whether you think she's being genuine or not, 
I have no idea if she's their friend, or their foe, or if she's just some sort of amoral force of nature. Whether or not she has their best interest in mind, which again is debatable, she starts this episode by dumping harsh truths on Rico, spends the middle of the episode kicking the crap out of Reg, and ends the episode by abandoning both of them in a forest on the second level. I would say Ozen's not a uh, caretaker material, you know? Regardless of what her intent may be, I feel like Ozen is an ongoing conflict for them, so long as they stay within her sphere of influence. Next conflict is the risk of madness from the Abyss. Last episode, I suppose that the weird creature Rico ran into in the darkness might be the manifestation of madness, because I posited that such a creature couldn't possibly exist. Well, it turns out I was right, but for the wrong reason. I mean, who would have guessed that Ozen dabbled in necromancy on the side? So it seems madness is not affecting Rico yet. However, later on, Ozen is talking to young Liza about why her hair is the way it is, and she says she's covering up the scars that have been caused by sort of the madness in the lower levels, that the psychological strains can manifest as actual physical scars. So the risk of madness is absolutely still a threat, and it's even more serious than we might have guessed. Finally, our new and sort of immediate conflict is this survival training that Ozen has abandoned them into. I think it's a fair bet that some aspect of the environment they've been placed in is about to determine their actions and perhaps the course of the narrative. Characterization-wise, we have uh, quite a bit going on. Ozen turns out to be quite the enigma and quite the interesting character. She begins the whole episode with a psychological and then physical attack on the two of them. She suddenly seems like she's a real threat to their continued survival. Then it's revealed that she's actually trying to test them, perhaps even prepare them for where they're going, and then towards the end of the episode you realize she kind of has a soft spot for the otherwise disenfranchised. For Maruk, for her subterranean bandits, for little Liza. This episode was quite the whirlwind tour through Ozen's character. Now some of this we already knew. She was again excessively frank, a little bit petty and immature. Reg actually calls her out on being immature. We get a first-hand demonstration of how strong and imposing she can be, but of course we learn some new things too. She states that she hates deceiving children, and I kind of believe her. Like, adults all the time kind of soften the truth for children. Little white lies to sort of protect them or otherwise ease them into the harsh realities of the world. I get the feeling Ozen doesn't really truck with that. She says she hates deceiving children, but I don't think that's because she loves children. I think she hates qualifying statements or wishy-washy convictions. I don't think she has any concern for people's feelings or their hang-ups. To her, I think social graces are just something that gets in the way of her own goals or her own viewpoint of the world. We get a little bit of extra narration in the very opening of this from Liza again, where it says that there are those who absolutely refused to stop pushing forward, and that on occasion they become one with their personal convictions, transforming into karma itself. She then goes on to say that these people have transcended humanity and essentially continue to watch over things with inhuman eyes. Now, I think we're supposed to assume that all that applies to Ozen, and I think it certainly does. It will probably turn out to be applicable to some other characters in this series, but for now, let's just worry about Ozen. Ozen kind of sees the world in black and white, and she even wears black and white, but she's what we would call morally gray. She seems very concerned with the utility of a thing, or the ends that it may bring, and not the means by which you get there. And in some ways, she is inhuman. We discover later on that her body is embedded with these relics. It's what makes her so strong, and also it makes her seemingly unaged. We learned during Habo's narration that she's been a white whistle for 50 years. So who knows how old she actually is? 
I think it's very clear that the journey to pursue whatever it is she is trying to pursue in the abyss, whatever her own personal goal is, has caused her to leave a lot of her humanity by the wayside, both physically and sort of emotionally. Again, I mentioned this last time, but I think this might be why she likes having Maruk around. He's very much all the things that she no longer is. It turns out, like I said, she has a bit of a soft spot. Her little group of cave raiders are all people who don't have a place on the surface, just like Maruk. And Liza, too, who it turns out she mentored, was apparently an orphan in her own right. That said, before we get carried away thinking she has a tough exterior but a really good heart, she absolutely threatened Rico. She absolutely held the incinerator at her. She absolutely said that she despised her, and I believe her. So, complicated character. Very delightful. As far as our other characters go, Rig once again sort of immediately puts himself out there whenever Rico's concerned. As bad and sort of out of place as it was for Ozen to say the things to Rico she did in the manner that she was saying, it's probably equally out of place for Rig to put his hands on her and interrupt her and call her on her immaturity. She's his superior, she's his host, she's his elder. It's totally out of line, but he does it anyway because Rico's the one who's getting hurt. He has a healthy bit of skepticism toward Ozen before this whole encounter. He still has it at the end too, I believe, though I think probably he will end up taking her lessons to heart more than Rico will. Part of that, of course, is the sort of loss of faith in himself he had, realizing he used the incinerator in a reckless way, which Ozen made very clear to him by simply pointing it at Rico, and he almost couldn't help but kill her. He's now very sort of chastised and mollified about his own shortcomings. And there's also a little bit of horror he has towards Ozen that is a little bit self-reflective. Now, TV tropes, don't go there, wait till the video's done. But TV Tropes has something it calls Immortality Immorality, which in short is that immortality or something close to it usually comes with or is achieved by or results in the immorality of a character. Ozen's done all the self-augmentation. She lived probably well beyond her normal span of years. And something that happens with immortal or otherwise long-lived characters is that they have a habit of looking at the much shorter lifespans of other people and find that those people's lives have lost value to them. In the same way you're more upset to lose a lifelong friend versus losing a long live pet versus losing a goldfish, the length of a life relative to your own does have a little bit of a sort of value matching to you. Not only that, but Ozen has sort of disfigured herself in a sense in order to gain this, which I think Reg finds kind of horrifying. The real sort of tension or subtext here though is Reg might be the same way. Who knows how old Reg is? He might essentially be an immortal and an unkillable thing himself. He presents as a kid and has lost his memory, but who knows how old he actually is? Who knows how long he'll actually live? I think some of his horror at Ozen here comes from his own sort of place of self-doubt and self-questioning. I mean, one day this could be him. One day he could see the world the same way she does. Between that and his own recklessness and pointing out that he failed to protect Rico, Reg's gotta be going through a little bit of a personal crisis now. Although speaking of crisis, Rico, Whew. So you know, sometimes one of the problems of digging into the unknown, of digging into your own shrouded past, you might not like what you find. You might have been better off not knowing. It remains to be seen if Rico is better off not knowing, but she certainly can't unknow this now. I don't have anything about this on the board because we're gonna have to see how she reacts in the future. Yeah, she was shocked of course, but we don't yet know if her character has changed as a result of finding out the conditions of her birth, if you wanna call it birth. What has changed for her this episode is the way she was reacting to Rig. Seeing Rig sort of helpless in Ozen's clutches, she tells Ozen that she didn't come into the abyss to seek a long life, which I think is kind of her just throwing that back in Ozen's face. But she says that even if it's just a little bit longer, unless it's with Rig, she's gonna find it unbearable. Now I suspect this might be a watershed moment in their relationship. 
I've pointed out before how she very much looks at Reg as sort of a, a robot or a pet or a friend. And he may remain all of that, but I think he's slowly but surely becoming more of a person to her. This might have actually been the moment that put him over the edge. We'll find out. But clearly her reaction to him was extremely emotional, extremely distraught. She's having her own personal crisis about finding out her own circumstances. She might drop dead any day. And all she can think of in that moment is, gotta save Reg, gotta be with Reg. Reg's what matters to me. Now Maru gets a few moments as well. During the whole scene where Ozen's sort of abusing the two of them, he tries to kind of excuse himself. I'll, I'll go look at the telescope. Maru does not like conflict. That's part of the reason he behaved the way he did last episode. And this is him in a sort of a little bit of cowardly way, being a little bit overmatched for the situation, trying to sort of let himself out. And Ozen's not having it, and he obeys. And you get the sense that it is the normal course of things. It's not until Rico is actually hurt that he decides, that's enough of that. This is out of control. I'm gonna go do something regardless of the punishment later. And he does, and Ozen later compliments on him. Even though he's gonna be punished for disobeying her, Ozen points out that he did do the right thing to save the moment. He's pleased to get a chance to play caretaker again. When Ozen tells him to take care of Reg, he kinda lights back up, first time he smiled the entire episode. You get the sense that Maruk is really very lonely. Despite wanting to hide from the surface, he is just 12. It's tough to be a kid in this world. Finally, via flashback, we have a little bit of baby Liza. Just as we suspected from her notes, she is insatiably curious, she's passionate about the abyss, she's driven. Like, there's no question where Rico gets any of this from. And Ozen, who's the one remembering all this, despite being a bit of a sourpuss, clearly delights in remembering it. Clearly smiles thinking back on it. Clearly enjoyed pushing Liza back in the day. It's clear Liza left a positive impression on a lot of people. And so having, like, the pursuit of her being the main driving goal of this whole series seems kind of appropriate. So coming to world building, this episode actually had a lot of world building in it. But you didn't notice it because the tension with Ozen took up so much of our focus, you don't realize how much information was being sort of parceled out all along the way. We have an opening bit of narration where Habo is sort of holding forth to Nato and Shigi. Now during this it shows us four images of white whistles. Now the last two we know, it's Liza and Ozen. But the first two we haven't met. One is the Cylon looking thing I pointed out that's in the opening credits way back in uh, episode two. And he has a white whistle that kind of makes me think of a fist, like a closed fist. The next one is a white whistle wearing some sort of bird's beak mask kind of thing. Kind of reminds me of a plague doctor's mask. And that one has a little whistle that kind of looks like a cat's nose. This little area of a cat or a tiger or something is kind of what it looks like to me. We get no other information about them at all. Although I'll say that the way that the second one's hand is drawn right there makes me think of age or frailty. I don't know. I think it's safe to say that first one, at least, will probably show up in the story at some point. Anyway, Habo continues to talk. He tells us that White Whistles are essentially armed with relics that they've excavated themselves. What's more, these relics are basically kept as a kind of a state secret. He says that the White Whistles are kind of the trump card of Orth, I guess in their contention with foreign cave raiders or whatever other geopolitics are going on. And so in a small way, this is a little bit like a secret identity superpower kind of thing. He says whatever their relic is, whatever it is that they're armed with, isn't revealed until their whistle returns to the surface i.e. when they die. Now this brings up a question to me immediately, which is, Liza's whistle came back, so what was the relic she was armed with? Where is that information? Eh, in the future, I guess. Later, when they're discussing the curse repelling vessel, Ozen says that Liza actually bought this thing. I had sort of mused last episode about what the deal with ownership of relics is, if personal ownership existed at all, and this episode went ahead and answered that for me. Then it goes and answers another question I had way back in the day, which is, what are the whistles used for? Or rather, why does it matter that the white whistle 
vessels can only be used by the person they're made for. Remember, Rico was told this when she was given Liza's whistle. It could only be used by its original owner. But I wondered, why does that matter? Well, turns out at least some relics are activated by that whistle. Now, I don't know why Ozens works on this curse-repelling vessel. Maybe it's not a one-to-one -one pairing or anything. But the fact that only Liza can use Liza's whistle, I'm sure will come into play sometime in the future. It's just cool to see finally what purpose they may have. Ozen points out that Rico, after she was reanimated, and also the dinner when it was reanimated, both headed toward the center of the abyss immediately, like it was instinct. Now I'm gonna guess that whatever it is the star compass points at is the same thing that they were pointing themselves at. I think this is just one more mention that there is something in the center of the abyss that is a lodestone to the attention of certain beings or things. We learn that not just the cursed repelling vessel, but a lot of relics are actually not listed. And this is intentional, that their mystery is important. Not just the state secrets like Habo is talking about, but Ozen thinks it's a little more of a philosophical thing. That preserving the mystery of the abyss is part of their mission, their purpose. Either way, it's important to them to keep some of these things out of the public eye. Now this of course sets the series up to introduce even more relics that we have no warning that are coming, but it also helps reinforce this kind of we don't really know everything that's going on feeling we have throughout this whole story. Ozu makes a couple of cryptic references in this episode. During the encounter with Reg, she notices that he blinks and breathes like a real person and says that he will probably be hunted by beasts also, whatever that means. And then later in her flashback involving Liza, she's talking about the scars that she's hiding with her hair, but she says that unlike the sixth layer's curse, they don't manifest immediately, which leaves the question of what is the sixth layer curse that manifests immediately? <laughs> Now, even though we now know there will be all kinds of relics that we haven't heard of yet, Ozen has not seen anything like Incinerator before. So while there are some powerful things coming down the line, most likely, Incinerator might actually end up being a cut above. Ozen's own personal relic is revealed, the Thousand Men Wedges, and it looks like she's inserted them kind of under her skin, all over her body. We only see her arms, but I think we can safely assume that the reason she's covered all the time is because she looks like that everywhere. Mentioned it already in Conflicts, but she does point out that the psychological strain some of the later layers is bad enough to actually manifest physically. It can actually sort of show up as scarring. So, uh, that's horrifying. Ozen has her own little motley crew of subterranean bandits. I think this just helps reinforce two things. One, Ozen is, despite all appearances, a little bit of a softie for the uh, people who don't have another place to go, or at the very least, she feels some kinship with them. But it also helps remind us that the line between good and bad, legal and illegal, authority and rebellion against authority might be a little bit blurred in this society. We already saw the wharf district and we realize there's kind of a seedy underbelly to the whole thing. We already see the geopolitics can be a little bit abusive and uh, amoral at the very least. And this just helps remind us that there's a lot going on here. This is people living real lives in all kinds of shades of morality and legality. It's definitely not a guild and cave raiders over here and everybody else over here. It looks very much like Liza was also a member of that orphanage way back in the day. This might explain why she brought Rico straight to it when she brought her up, why she knew leader in the first place. If we assume Ozen does feel kinship with people who don't have a home or are otherwise sort of disenfranchised, then this might be the reason she took on Liza as her um, apprentice. Which, by the way, Ozen was Liza's mentor. They weren't contemporaries exactly, which is kind of what we thought of all along, but Ozen was in the game before Liza even existed. The fact that Liza apparently surpassed Ozen is kind of interesting. It says a lot about Liza. Now, at last, we are to theme. We are gonna do theme cleanup a little bit, but first I wanna talk about the thematic elements that are present in just this episode. The whole world of children viewpoint thing has been consistent throughout this whole series. And this episode has some great examples of making sure we know that we're seeing things from the perspective of the kids. 
As they're walking into Ozen's chambers, the camera is looking up at her little cloak and hat, meaning we're seeing from the child's viewpoint. And then Ozen herself, whenever she is being particularly threatening or harsh, gets uh, distorted. Her facial features distort into sort of abysses of their own. She gets all sort of hunched and otherwise sort of towering whenever she's being threatening to them. She looks especially evil and villainous whenever she's sort of laying things on the line for Rico. But in the second half of this episode, after it's revealed that she was just testing them and was not actually out to get them, she looks normal from then on. She looks normal and unthreatening and on model. So all that distortion we saw was just the way the kids were seeing her. Their imagination and their own fear and threat amplified her threatening qualities in their eyes, and we as the audience got to see that. Again, it's important that we're seeing this world from the viewpoint of children. It's world of children. Closely related, we have the ongoing power of friendship idea. We both have Reg putting himself out there and sort of in mortal peril to protect Rico. And then we later have Maruk going and getting the other cave raiders to get them to come in and kind of calm the situation down. Now, during the whole time that the situation is uh, not calmed down, Ozen has some lines that I was kind of hoping she would have. Kind of the reason I wanted to put theme cleanup off until now was because I was really interested in what Ozen was going to say. And she has this whole bit where she's asking Reg if he believes in God, and then relates people's belief in God to actually more of a belief in the abyss. The fear of it, the draw of its unknown qualities, the importance of the mystery and giving it power. She relates people's pursuit of and fear of and fascination with the abyss to being almost religious or spiritual in nature that the unknown quantity of the abyss has a power all of its own. Looking back, we can tell that that is very true. It's definitely related to some other things we've talked about, and that makes it very easy to group a lot of these together when we get there. There's definitely a sort of the ends justify the means, or do they, kind of quandary brought up in this as well. Ozen presumably wants to make sure Reg and Rico can go further into the abyss, that they can survive, and that end result is all she cares about. The means by which she's pursuing that goal are a little bit questionable, but she's totally on the side of the end or what matter. Reg and Rico most likely are probably more of on the means matter. So there's actually definitely a tension here that we can go ahead and make its own theme. Somewhat related to that is kind of the, the cost of progress or the cost of success. I'll give you two examples. The things that Ozen has done to herself, all the relics she's inserted into herself has changed her lifespan and her appearance and in some ways made her less human was a cost she was willing to pay for the power and the vigor and the longevity it's given her. But something was given up. And then at the very end, she's giving advice to Reg about the use of an incinerator. It needs to avoid using it, but if the time comes when it is appropriate, to not have any hesitation, to have no mercy, to make sure whatever it is you're pointing it at is totally annihilated. Whatever the cost of that is, to her doesn't matter so much as the success of it. You make sure you succeed regardless of that cost when the time comes. Additionally, there's this idea, and it's come up before, of being worthy of the abyss or becoming worthy of the abyss. There's a whole whistle system and its restrictions, but then there's a whole scene where Rosen is kind of proving that they are unfit for the abyss. Now, remembering that some people hold almost a religious reverence for the abyss, you can see where some idea of proving yourself worthy would crop up, that you must undergo training and trials and tribulations to be worthy of plumbing its depths, to be worthy of discovering its secrets. I guessed way back at the beginning that the abyss would be sort of a grand symbol for this whole thing. And as the series goes along, the abyss becomes less and less this concrete source of wealth and material goods, and more and more a sort of philosophical pursuit, more and more a state of mind, 
a goal for one's personal fulfillment or spiritual awakening or whatever. And like any good sort of religious mystery, it needs to be available only to the few. It needs to be a rarity, something privileged, that gives it some of its allure. That's why the mystery of it is so important. You have to prove yourself worthy of the abyss, and it turns out, the abyss itself is the ultimate proving grounds. So now I think we can safely do a little bit of theme cleanup. Now over here on the boards, and I'll show you a kind of blown up version, we have all the themes that I've kind of come up with over the course of the previous six episodes. Secret world of children, abyss as mover of fate, in search of a past, the power of friendship, history repeating versus fighting your fate, the truth is buried and, and the truth needs excavating, they're kind of the same thing, who you are versus what you do, the idea of a point of no return, and also gaining strength from the sacrifice of your precursors. Now the scope and type of those themes is pretty varied, honestly. Counting this episode and sort of the revelations we've had and the way we can look back, I would also have added to this list normally the idea of being or becoming worthy of the abyss, the power of the unknown, all that stuff that Ozen was talking about, the ends versus the means, sort of that trade-off, which is related to the idea of the cost of progress or the cost of success. Now, while I don't think any of these themes has turned out to be wrong or not really thematically consistent, a lot of them have some overlap. A lot of them can be grouped together to make it easier to keep track of them. And so going forward, I'm gonna propose that we actually just have these four sort of super categories of themes. It may be we need to add some more in the future, and if they don't fit into these super categories, we'll make a new category. But theme is actually kind of hard to tell while you're still in the middle of a series. It's much easier to do looking back, but I think it's enjoyable and a good exercise to try to pick up on thematic elements as you're going along when you don't really know what's going to be important yet. Among other things, if you pick up on themes correctly, they'll actually help you understand where a story's going and can help you understand why characters do the things they do just as much as their characterization does. So then let's talk about these four super categories. The first one, probably the biggest, maybe even the most important theme if you can rank themes in importance, is what I'm calling the gravity of the unknown. Now I'm meaning gravity in two different ways here. In one way, I mean gravity in the sense of the thing that keeps my feet stuck to the floor, and that the unknown elements in the story have a gravitational pull all their own. The most obvious one is the mystery of the abyss and the abyss itself that pulls so many fates into it, that pulls so much attention and curiosity towards itself, but that's not the only unknown that is shaping people's fates. The people who are unknown, Rico not knowing about Liza and wanting to change that. The pasts that are unknown, Reg not remembering anything and not knowing where he came from. And then the actual fate or current whereabouts of Liza is an unknown, perhaps the biggest unknown that's drawing everything toward it. The other way I mean gravity is in reference to its seriousness. Like you've probably heard the expression, the gravity of the situation. The unknown doesn't just pull things towards it, it also is incredibly important. It has incredible importance to the story, to the characters in it. And owing to its seriousness and its gravitational pull, it's pulled a lot of our other themes into it. In Search of a Past is obviously all about the unknown and how it guides us. The Abyss as a mover of fate, our new theme of the power of the unknown that Ozen helped articulate for us, clearly goes into this category. The idea that there may be a point of no return when you're chasing after the unknown. Physically, it manifests in the story as the curse of the Abyss, but there's a lot of instances of not being able to return from whence you came. For example, Rico cannot go back to not knowing the circumstances of her birth. She can't unknow this now. She can't pretend that she is normal. She can't pretend that she doesn't have perhaps a fate that's already written out. She was fine while that information was unknown. Now that it's known, it's gonna change her. She can't go back to the person she was who didn't know. 
Lastly, that idea that the truth needs excavating, the truth is naturally buried, applies in this as well. Things that are unknown will stay unknown unless some sort of active attempt is made to bring them into the known. I guess what I'm kind of saying there is that the things we know have to be actively maintained as known. The default state of knowledge is to be unknown. And if no one remembers it, no one writes it down, or everyone who does dies, it reverts to being unknown again. Unknown has its own kind of gravity and pulls things towards it. It takes active work, it takes active striving and perhaps sacrifice to go into the unknown and pull back things that now are known. All right, so that's that one. The next super category I'm calling Finding Your Fate, which is mostly about characters' pasts and everything that's brought them to this point being one set of forces, and then the choices they themselves make about where they go from here being the other set of forces. In Search of a Past goes on this list too. In Search of a Past theme is the reason I realized I had a problem and needed some cleanup, because in this case, past is prologue, where you came from definitely makes you a lot of who you are. But, and this is related to history repeating versus fighting your fate, your past is not all there is to say about you. In other words, there's a difference between who you are versus what you do. Maybe you're an indestructible, ageless, abyss-created robot, but if you do and act like a human instead, then that's the real you. It's not the details of your past, it's not the details of your fate, it's not the details of your history repeating, all that's pressure on you, but ultimately, finding and choosing your own fate, I feel like is a major theme we have going on here, and all the rest of these can kind of go right in that little slot. Ends versus means is our third super category. It's new this time, but it really has been kind of going on all along. I'm putting the new ones of, well, ends versus means into this one, the cost of progress or success, and that idea of being or becoming worthy of the abyss. These all go along with the strength of the sacrifice of precursors to form this whole idea of, is it the ends that matter or is it the means that matter? And just like finding your fate, it's other sort of super category, this comes down to sort of an individual character choice. Some characters are always gonna choose one way over the other, but I think a lot of characters it's gonna be sort of a case by case basis. A good example of this comes from a few episodes ago when Habo is volunteering to take Reg and Rico to the Seeker camp and Rico calls him off because it becomes important to her to prove that they can get to the second layer themselves. Now she thinks it's because Leader is testing them, but the point is she chose the means, how they got there, over the end goal of getting there. One of those became more important to her. And we now know, if we didn't before, that she's gonna be someone for whom the means matter. Last super category, hardly a super category at all, but the whole world of children thing I'm on and on about all this time. So much of the story relies on it being children making the decisions and children having the perspective. That's really important to remember that's the kind of story we're in. The only thing I've nestled underneath there is the idea of the power of friendship. Now the power of friendship is not reserved for children alone, but I think that is where its power is most potent. As you get older, friendships sort of come and go. It gets harder and harder to actually make new friends. You end up spending all of your energy trying to maintain the friendships you had versus trying to make any new ones because you realize in a kind of a sad way that they don't last. That all the little minutia of the everyday and the inertia of whatever trajectory you're on in your life takes you further and further away from the people who at one time were very important to you. Children don't yet have this sort of sobering bit of sadness. To them, their friendships can seem extremely important. Some of the most important things in their life. And so the power of friendship, the way it leads you to do things you might not otherwise do, is strongest in a world of children's story. And that's why it shows up most of the time in stories with younger characters. So I think just for expediency's sake, we're gonna keep those two sort of joined at the hip from now on. So that ultimately is our theme cleanup. I hope you understand why I've grouped things the way they are. I think it'll make it much easier to talk about things in the future, giving us broader categories to work with. And as we get more of a series under our belt, we can dig into any new thematic patterns that emerge 
and get more and more examples to sort of shore up the things we're talking about. Moving into what to watch for, not really a lot here. I think next episode we're going to watch and see how Reg and Rico have been affected by the events of this episode. Rico will likely be having a little bit of an existential crisis, and Reg will be having a little bit of a crisis of confidence. I think it'll be very interesting to see if Rico is more reckless or less reckless based on the new information she has about herself. I do think Reg will be more cautious than he has been, even though he has already been pretty cautious, but his own sort of self-doubt may make him give way to Rico more than he might normally. We want to be watching for Ozan's cryptic statement about the beasts may hunt him too. I don't know if that means in this particular instance in this next episode, but she seems to believe that he'll be hunted because he blinks and breathes and otherwise indicates as being a human. It may be that he has the choice to throw away his human seeming in order to save himself, or more likely to save Rico. So speculation-wise, I've got just a few things here. First, I don't think that we're done with our curse-repelling vessel friend. It has a rather curious power, and is somewhat limited by the fact that it must be too heavy for anyone except Ozen to move. I don't think we're done with any connection between Ozen and Reg either, even though she relents and says she wasn't actually trying to kill Reg to keep him from remembering things. Clearly there is something in the past that he would remember. So I think our idea that she knew him in the past, he knew her, and the idea that Reg knew Liza also gets a little more strength here. I think that is kind of where we're heading. Why it matters that he's forgotten that, what Ozen would want to hide or know about, I don't yet have a sense of, but I think it's clear that that will come back into the story in some way. Speaking of the way things are connected, I started speculating last time that Liza may be dead, and that maybe Reg buried her there, and that maybe Reg came up to the surface looking for Rico, because he'd heard about her from Liza, because he was sent for some reason, don't yet know. But the point of the speculation was that for whatever reason, Liza can't come back herself. Now, if she's not in fact dead, if she's not in fact buried there, there might be some other reason she can't come up. Like we know, the Curse of the Abyss gets quite pronounced as you get lower, so maybe that she is beyond the point of no return. But this brings up something that's kind of bothered me from like episode two, which is if Liza really wanted Rico so badly, like Leader seems to think, like the story he told, then why did she go down there when Rico was just two years old and never returned? And look, I do believe Liza wanted Rico. If you remember this image from Leader's story, you see the team that has been assembled to go after the unheard bell. Liza obviously draws our eye, but now we know that figure behind her is Ozen. First of all, let's point out how exactly huge and towering and kind of intimidating Ozen is. But second of all, that's the cursed repelling vessel on her back. We found out this time that Liza bought that with her own money. Clearly she went to these lengths because she knew she was pregnant and she knew there was a chance that she would be down there when she came to term. So if you go to that effort and you abandon everything to bring her back to the surface, why do you abandon the child in an orphanage and go back down there two years later? Well, maybe this episode has given us our answer. If everything Ozen said is true about Rico's birth, that she was stillborn, that putting her in the cursed repelling vessel actually brought her back to life, and that things brought back like that will eventually stop moving, it seems to me Liza might have actually had a pretty good reason to go back into the abyss, which is to find a way to stop this from happening. Scour the depths of the abyss looking for something that's going to prolong her daughter's life. That seems like a much better reason to abandon your toddler and go into the abyss from which you eventually don't actually return. This would also explain Ozen's attitude towards Rico. Now that we know that Ozen was Liza's mentor, and we have a sense of how Ozen views the world, where her goals and what she wants are more important than the lives in it, then Liza abandoning whatever it was the two of them were up to, to go try to save her daughter, would probably seem to Ozen like she's giving up on all these goals because of this stupid little child. And so, because Ozen was actually pretty fond of Liza, she externalizes this as resentment towards that child. Rico. 
When they first show up at the secret camp, Ozen's saying under her breath, the brat is still alive. At the time, it seems, oh, she must have known she was coming. She's remarking on the fact that she's still alive after coming down this far. But that's probably not what she means. She probably is sort of grudgingly accepting that that child is still alive, that Liza's mission to prolong her life is not yet in vain. This might not all be 100% on the nose, but Liza's and Ozen's actions make a lot more sense to me if that's how we frame them. Ozen's resentment is not very mature, but at least it's a little bit understandable. And Liza basically leaving her child behind doesn't seem quite like abandonment anymore. In fact, it seems like quite the ultimate sacrifice. Or it would, if she has actually found a way to extend Rico's life. How are you gonna like it that that necklace from episode one that I pointed out we hadn't seen last time ends up being that thing that she gave it to Reg to bring to the surface? And Rico's carrying it around, they're gonna go all the way down only to discover that that's what they need all along? It's gonna be like Wizard of Oz all over again where Dorothy has the slippers all along. That's the big speculation. Next episode, I, I don't know if the survival camp thing's gonna work. Like, I guess I can't imagine that they'll spend 10 days there and then come back to the secret camp and then go through a couple more weeks of training and then go about their merry way. I think it's much more likely that something happens during the survival training and they don't ever come back to the secret camp. Or at the very least, it does not go according to plan. They might accidentally get lower. They might accidentally not be able to get back. They might have another character enter the fray. I just don't believe for a second we're going to watch Reg and Rico go about their way for 10 days and then come right back to where we started. Part of the reason I wanted to do speculation all along and kind of share with you where I'm at and why I'm thinking the things I'm thinking. Speculation in some ways is the opposite of theme. Theme comes more into focus as you look backwards as a series and you progress through it. You start seeing what things are there consistently and whatever pattern is suggested by that. Speculation, on the other hand, is you looking forward to the things that are not there and trying to see if any patterns exist there. So speculation is kind of like tying up your loose ends, the questions you don't necessarily have answers for yet, and imagining, based on the way characters act, based on the goals and conflicts that are driving the story, based on the themes you've seen giving unity to the whole, and understanding the rules of the universe explained in world building. All these elements come together to make speculation what it is. How you can justify it, how you can orient yourself in a story while it's still going on, based on how you can speculate. It may seem very much like an idle exercise, but to me it's actually important to the analysis process to a story that is still in motion. So, I will continue to guess, probably wrongly, about where we're going in the series. So then, that was episode 7. We've got our themes all nice and cleaned up. Everything's clean now going forward into the second half of the series. Ozen has indeed clarified some things and muddied the waters for us a bit, and I'm very interested to see where we go from here. The way certain revelations have been paced in this series, I bet we'll go maybe a couple more episodes and something big will happen also. Episode 9 or maybe 10 to set us up for the finale. I think hopefully by that point we'll have all the information we need to see where the story is going. And I gotta say, I'm still genuinely curious about how they're gonna bring all these elements together. Even though this is a straightforward story from a kind of a narrative standpoint, there's so much unknown and so much mystery here that it's gonna be quite a cool trick to see them pull it all together. Anyway, till next time. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearly on red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.